0: things are now now i'm just trying to keep all the people around me not congregating and separated and, and we'll see it's so interesting because it feels like you're over responding until it's done and then you're probably under responded
1: which is a a really interesting aspect of the um of the resilience literature right um which is eric eric's writing you know uh, responding is one of the four pillars of resilience and and we see seem to be able to i mean we are almost into the um into the, uh, the podcast. Hey
0: everybody, pre-accident podcast, uh, Todd Conklin, I'm your host. Is that how I start these? How do we start these? This is the pre-accident podcast. You've heard it a million times. Um, so today's pretty good one. Uh today I'm going to sit down and talk to my buddy Sydney Decker, Professor Decker, you know him. And we're going to talk about COVID-19 and capacity and resilience. So that's what's coming on the podcast today. Before we get into it though, um are you, how you doing? I mean just just want to check in. Um some of you are working harder than you've ever worked before and some of you are sitting home wondering what to do and and there's everybody in between there. And it's tough and I worry about how you're doing and I hope that you're keeping appropriate distance from other people and you're washing your hands a bunch of times and you're trying to stay out of the public and you're not in groups of people. But if your job requires that you are in all of those things, how are you being careful and how are you doing? Cause right now anxiety is crazy high and fear is high and scariness is high, and it seems to be quite a thing. I mean, just the economic impact of this pandemic, which is no small part of it, but that's just, it's devastating. I don't even know what to say. Other than it felt like it was time to reach out to Sid and ask him what he was thinking. And we had a great conversation. Not all of it's on the podcast because we just talked about a ton of stuff. His university is pretty much empty. In fact, I think he comments that he walked across campus and did not see a student at all, no students at all, and that the cities are quiet and the roads are empty and that people are really trying hard to not do things like travel or amass in groups or go out in public. And that's a real struggle. I mean, it's it's a struggle, and we start... Our conversation around that struggle, around the notion of, you know, when's too much and when's not enough. In fact, the the teaser for the intro for today's podcast sort of alluded to that, so you've heard it already. That is just one little tiny snippet of a conversation we had really around what's happening in the world and how it's all happening and what we're thinking about and what we're doing. And I can't tell you how much I'm thinking about you guys and all your workers that work for you and the the position that they're in globally, because it's a big part of what we think about. And the idea that we have to just keep trudging forward is not just an idea. It's really what we must do. But by the time you hear this, you know, the amplification of this disease in North America is remarkable. This week, Is a bad week next week? They're saying it's even going to be worse. It's starting to have legs in Latin America. It's absolutely devastated Europe. You know that. Asia. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's a pandemic. I never thought we'd live in the example that they use when they talk about investing that you're, you know, and this line is a, this line on this chart is when there's a full pandemic. Don't worry about that. That'll never happen. Well, it's happening. We're in that line. We're in the worst case scenario, in the most uncertainty, in a truly variable situation, and we're counting solely and completely on our ability to adapt. That agility, that adaption, that's what's keeping you alive. And that's what's keeping your organizations alive. And that's what's keeping people moving forward. And it's strange, too, because geez, it's just... The, the amount of disinformation versus information, uh, how, how it doesn't feel serious, and yet it is serious, those things are all really a part of risk. It's the part of, we talk about all the time, and now it's happening. And right now, today, it's serious, and it's vital that we stay hunkered down, but not single-minded that we don't interact and yet we seek diversity that we're very careful while being incredibly bold with our solutions. And those are really hard things to do because they seem like opposites or they did until a couple of weeks ago. Now it's kind of how adaption works. So that's what the podcast will be about today. It's a kind. Of, I think you're going to, you'll hear, you'll listen to this more than once. Uh, I can almost guarantee you it's, it's really good. There's lots of information here. um, and you'll enjoy it. So let's start it. Uh, The best way to get on with this podcast is to get on with the podcast. So sit back and relax. You're going to hear Sidney Decker and uh, myself talking about the world, uncertainty, resilience, adaption, and COVID-19. Thanks for being a part of the podcast. Tell somebody else to listen to this. Try to get one other person to listen, and we'll see if this really does make a difference this is definitely the kind of podcast you want to play for the people who boss people around in your company. So here it comes. Here's the podcast. Let's talk to Professor Decker, who's somebody who knows a lot about capacity and resilience and has been a friend of mine for 20 years. He's the person we ought to talk
1: to. What are you thinking? What's,
0: what's up, Sid?
1: (laughs) Well, part of what's up is, you know, is keeping hunkered down is what's up. And so not just me, but the family and, I'm, I'm on the university campus right now, and um, there's a lot of students missing, man. In fact, I haven't seen a single one since I um, uh, came to campus this morning. Wow. The uh, the classes are moving online, of course, and uh, and we're not unique in this. And in in some sense, it is uh, it's it's a minor problem compared to what others are are facing. As I still have a job, which is uh, which is one thing um, and still healthy. But uh, the consequences are severe and deep. And I think it teaches us potentially a lot about the the resilience or the lack thereof of the systems that we've built up.
0: What does that mean specifically? Because resilience is really easy to talk about theoretically, but it's much different when you're in the midst of this, this crisis that we're in. I mean, it seems like we're over responding, but then in retrospect, it seems like we under respond. Where do we go with this?
1: Very, yeah, that's a very important point. Uh, as Eric Holnagel, of course, has, has written, uh, responding, uh, between anticipating and monitoring and learning, uh, responding is a very important component of, uh, resilience. And you're right. You, I think you painted it beautifully that, um, uh, it seems as if we are over-responding by locking people down and um, uh, not letting them leave their houses. And even those really drastic measures um, are um, are then evidence of us under-responding in, in hindsight uh, when it turns out that that it really wasn't enough. One part of that seems to be a consistent underrating, and um, uh, and you see this in your own country, of the expertise that ex- actually is available around these things. If you talk to epidemiologists, if you talk to people who do this for a living, virologists, um, they will tell you that these drastic measures not only are necessary, but would have been necessary quite a while ago already. Instead, there is unfortunately a, a level of politi- politicization of the of the of the discussion, the conversation around this uh, uh, in. In, in your country more than any others that i 've seen, um, which tends to uh, not only muddle the message but but um, turn it into uh, to to crowd pleasing uh, into uh, what is socially or politically acceptable, instead of um, uh, driven by by the uh, the expertise uh, necessary to manage these sorts of things. So if you want to anticipate and monitor and then respond meaningfully, defer to the experts, right? So it doesn't help to then um, actually disband. A committee in in 2018 that was tasked in in, in national security um, for dealing with these issues, for anticipating and monitoring uh, pandemics. All right, so you disbanded two years ago. Well, you're sitting on sitting on the uh, the blisters of that right now.
0: And we feel it to an extent, but it's interesting in that the political side of this, the 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 positive messaging, that seems to play an important role to the overall psyche of a of a of a nation. So there must be a balance there somewhere, isn't there?
1: When it comes to leadership in situations like these, it is always quite tempting um, to turn to um, what seems to be strong and decisive leadership. And strong and decisive leadership in times of crisis is good. but if it is itself based on, um, on insufficient deference to expertise, to people actually who, who know what they're talking about vis-a-vis the nature of the crisis, um, then strong and decisive leadership can be very strong and decisive in a pretty wrong direction.
0: What about the need to oversimplify? You, you, I'm seeing that like all over as we simplify very complex problems in order to make them palpable or manageable or understandable.
1: The the major issue with the current current crisis, uh, Todd, is is the is is not just its complexity, and and that certainly is interesting to reflect on because contagion is of course a biological process, but actually, it is much more, at least in in, in our world, uh, a social process, right? Contagion is social, and contagion doesn't happen if people don't meet if people don't have uh, social interactions. And so in order to track and predict and prevent contagion, um, we have to understand the social and the social is by nature complex. But the other thing in this is that humanity, we have a seriously difficult time dealing with exponential functions. Right? That something is, is two today and then it's going to be four tomorrow right? and it's going to be 16 the day after tomorrow right? and then it, it skyrockets up from there and it's really difficult for us to match not only our understanding but our ability to respond to exponential functions um, in a way that, that stays ahead of that curve.
0: Which takes us to capacity. I mean, to me, that's the most interesting observation I'm seeing on a daily basis is that we're really pushing capacity to its bloody, bloody edge.
1: There's been such a drive for efficiency in all kinds of industries, including healthcare. But we've seen it in airlines as well, right? Airlines touting themselves as the most efficient airline in the world. Well, you shave so much of your adaptive capacity when you do that and the knowledge and the depth of expertise in your management layers, for example, um, that you have nothing to go with once once this one hits the fan, right? And um, I think – and. It, well, before we go to capacities, um, uh, let, let's briefly reflect on on what that means for for resilience. The two are, of course, deeply intertwined. But um, it, it is insufficient, and the literature and practical experience once again dictates that so clearly. It is insufficient to try to manage these sorts of things through a control of critical risks. It's not how it works, right? Because we may completely mispredict what critical risk actually is or the size or rapidity of the escalation of that risk, as in this case. Um, We've also seen that control of human behavior is incredibly difficult, right? We try to do this in all kinds of lockdown orders and don't go to the park. And if you do, stay a meter and a half from each other, um, all of that. But as we have known for years, right, control of human behavior, for example, through, you know, behavior-based safety is is dead in the water if you don't change the conditions under which that behavior emerges. And so um, control of human behavior is not the answer either, right, it's, it's in itself. Um, control of accidents, control of uh, 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 negative events doesn't really work either. Now, there's all kinds of ways in which, of course, people have thought about resilience. And, and I think there's one, one way that has come out of that um, that is uh, especially instructive for the current situation, right? If, if people think about resilience sometimes, and, and this, of, of course, also comes out of the, 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 the sense of high reliability organizations or high, high reliability theory, that reliable components are good enough to have a, a safe, good system that can manage a crisis or a situation like the current one. Um, that if we have healthy people, that uh, don't interact, we're all good. Um, but, you know, that Turns out to be uh, not manageable, and because we don't have all healthy people, and we cannot not interact because we're social beings and we need stuff from each other. And so, um, so then people say, well, okay, uh, let's make it robust, uh, which is sort of the next level up. Um, Now that often gets equated in engineering terms with uh, redundancy, right? If you have two of the same things, then you know if one fails, then at least you still have another one that can do the same job. Um, and right. So you can get really reliable components that is with a, a mean time between failures that is really long right, to speak in engineering terms, but you get two of those, it gets even better. Um, the problem is that doesn't work with people because there's this social redundancy that is really a fallacy. It doesn't work with social systems. Um, people are not engineered components. They rely on each other for insights, for knowledge. They make assumptions about what, the Other knows about what the other has or doesn't have, and which may or may not be true. Engineered systems don't do that. About that, there's it's mean. So, I'm flying the 73, right? And the one engine is really not thinking about the other engine, it is, in fact, ignorant about the fact that there is another engine. Um, and even that is anthropomorphizing the engine, which is bizarre, right? So, <laughs> it's not a sentient, you know, knowing being. It's so, but if you got two people, they actually do know about each other, and so, um, so. Social redundancy really doesn't work in the same way as engineered redundancy. And we, you see these in groupthink, right? You get more people saying the same thing and you do even stupider things, right? So um, because we all seem to agree. So, yeah, Bay of Pigs sounds like a really good idea, right? And so, um, and, uh, so social – anyway, I think I made the point. Now, so that's where people start. Thinking about resilience and initially, right, even if you have reliable components and you make them robust and redundant, that still doesn't mean that if you push that to the edge of its safe operating envelope, pretty much the teetering edge where many hospitals are right now, then the idea of resilience originally was can the system cope with that without crumbling back to – back to its, uh, original functioning and resilience in that sense gets measured as a return time to equilibrium. It gets equated with a rebound from trauma, right? That you, you, right. you expose a system to significant trauma and pressure. Um, and the leaner you've made it, the more likely it is to crumble at the edge of its envelope. Um, and so that's, that's resilience. If, if, if the crumbling doesn't happen now, um, What we've seen, though, is is that that is not really a sufficient or or necessarily uh, useful uh, way to think about resilience in the current situation. Instead, can you somehow expand your base adaptive capacity to handle more unknown disruptions? That is the resilience we need to be looking for right now. Can you expand your base adaptive capacity, as Dave Woods would say, right, to handle more unknown disruptions? What we really need to get our heads around is if you want to manage with a focus on resilience, you have to control adaptive capacity. Now, that's a bit of a. Uh, a contradiction in terms because adaptive capacity is by its very nature something emergent, something uh, uh, dynamic, something that deals with complexity and thus um, is is not something you can control Um, because if we could control complexity, then it wouldn't be complexity. It would be merely complicated or simple, right? Complexity is fundamentally in itself uncontrollable. We can do some things. We can influence it for sure in fact everything we do does influence the complex system but controlling it is very difficult but that doesn't mean that we cannot control adaptive capacity let me take you back to a to a really cool study that many of your listeners may have heard me talk about uh, or or have seen the the writing around but it was in a hospital Um, way back, about 15 years ago. Um, And this this is actually a pretty safe hospital. They only killed or maimed or injured one in 13 of their patients, right, which is pretty good for a hospital. And so um, in the process of giving them care, right? and of course, the hospital is really interested in finding out what they could do about that and make that number even even lower. I, instead of seven percent, let's make it even lower. Now, it turned out that telling people to not violate or to follow guidelines or putting up posters to be you know more angelic in your you know performance as a clinician, none of that worked. Which wouldn't surprise anybody who's done this for a living, and it didn't surprise us either. But um, we we then asked the sort of the Eric Holmgren question, which is, well, why do the other twelve actually go right? And um, it turned out – so we went went into this and and dug through the data and what we found was that the 12 go right. So – sorry. Let me go back. Asking why the one goes wrong is actually not as revealing and as interesting as asking why the 12 go right. What we found was that the 12 go right because – because those teams that make things go well, have greater diversity of opinion and an ability to uh, dissent. And when it's about diversity of opinion, you go, well, diversity is always good when it comes to complexity and resilience. And you see that in ecological systems, right? The greater the the ecological diversity, the more resilient the, the natural system is. And this goes for human and social uh, systems as well. Um, so greater diversity of opinion um, matters now. What we figured though and and that turned out to be the case is that diversity of uh, social ethnic background matters a little bit. Uh, Diversity of gender matters a little bit but what matters most is diversity of professional background in in these situations that people have different ways of slicing the problem. People have different ways of coming at the problem and seeing solution pathways or in fact error traps that others with a different background may not see. Um, the other the other uh, uh, capacity that we found in these teams that made things go well, well, well was their ability to keep a discussion about risk alive even when everything looked hunky-dory. And so um, that is that sort of anticipation that Eric talks about, right? How do these teams anticipate? Well, you brief. You go, well, we've done it five times already. Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, because taking past success as a guarantee that it will go right this time again in a dynamic thing to do. The dynamic, complex world is that past results are no guarantee for future success, and so, um, so teams that didn't take that for granted were those who who are were more likely to make things go well. Um, of course, we you know we found the ability to say stop in the face of uh, of acute pressures to continue uh, an important component, uh, and and that won't surprise many people who work in safety critical industries, um, but. Really critically and that goes back to um, uh, a previous discussion is is we found the deference to expertise uh, to be key if you ask those who know instead of those who are in charge you probably get better answers and better outcomes and we saw that confirmed in this in this research so um, ask the people who know not not the people who are in charge and those are not necessarily the same people in fact they're often not the same people and so um, now, that's, of course, not a new finding either. I mean the, the high reliability crowd, right? The Northern Californians came up with this back in the 1970s, right? Deference to expertise. Let decision-making gravitate to, to expertise and then you become a, an HRO or high, high reliability organization. It was one of the key components of the key as, aspects or or um, attributes of of what became a uh, high reliability theory. Um, so efforts to expertise and, of course, Deming, you know, quality guru, Deming was talking about this in the 70s and 80s as well. So um, it's a recurring finding and we seem to uh, not heed it, which is uh, unfortunate. Um, Teams that didn't wait for inspections and audits for things to improve, you know, that sort of capacity, they themselves improved and intervened in ways that made good outcomes more likely uh, without somebody telling them from the outside. Um, Those are teams that are more likely to be successful. and uh, pride of workmanship w- was another factor we found. Teams that are really proud of the work they've done, they look back on it and go, wow, that's a good job. That sort of capacity helps um, steer outcomes toward uh, toward uh, success. Now again, that's – and Deming found that way back in the 1980s as well. So it was nice for that to be uh, reproduced. Now, If we go back to the idea of a control of adaptive capacity and you look at those findings and if you're an accountable manager or a company board or a hospital board, you go, wow, if that's the case, if those are the capacities that make the difference between failure and success, then what is within my power? What is within my control to increase those adaptive capacities? I am convinced, Todd, that if you find ways to harness those and to leverage those to even perhaps find more more adaptive capacities within your teams and you seek a sense of control over those, then you will will reign supreme. You will come out of this good Um, in contrast to those who are just trying to manage or control the critical risks or control human behavior or control accidents or contacts or incidents. Those are those are going to be behind the curve if you want to be ahead of the curve. And if you want to be able to accelerate out of this thing ahead of the pack, make sure that you have found ways to control your adaptive capacity.
0: How do you do that during a sense of urgency? Because because I think the sense of urgency is a, a new layer on top of this discussion. That's pretty global urgency, big urgency that makes this really interesting.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. And again, I mean, back to the work of Eric, um, he, he talked about scrambled control, right? And, and it seems that that's the mode that we're in, um, in which you are always behind the facts that in, in which you are, uh, your interpretations never keep up with the way the complex situation is rapidly evolving. Um, and thus your ability to respond, let alone anticipate or learn, is severely undermined. The only way to do that, though, uh, I think, in answer to your question is to make sure that within your own team, if you, if you manage or, 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 or run things, um, is to make sure that you have capacity in your team um, to focus on the slightly longer game and to focus on the, uh, the adaptive capacities um, within, within your people, your group, your organization, um, to keep meeting emerging demands, um, highly variable, highly unpredictable demands. Uh, if all you do is scrambling around in emergency mode um you're not going to get ahead of this
0: How do you feel right now
1: um, it's uh, it's 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 interesting as uh, you know in science we try to decouple ourselves from the phenomena we study right that's sort of the yeah. idea or the or the ideal of the objective scientific mindset um but we're all part of this complex system. We're in the film, you know. We're in the movie as it's being made, and we are actors ourselves as well. And and in fact, we are stakeholders. I have kids in various countries, right? And so I, that sounded wrong. <laughs> Sorry, my <laughs> kids have moved out of that. Some of my kids have moved out of the house. Yeah, that's way that's way
0: better than way better. <laughs> I, I
1: did sound wrong. Um. And um, and uh, so the um, uh, there is a personal concern around these things. On the other hand, um, I see huge opportunities, right, in various ways, in various levels. One is, of course, it's 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 a it's a, a study of resilience and brittleness in the making, right? And and that can uh, tell us a lot about ourselves uh, uh, in 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 the future, um, which we should be capitalizing on. Something that gives me hope is that we are forced um, to actually cut through and remove some of the non-essential encrustations that we've put around organizations, right? In our our desire to manage risk um, over the past, say, 20 years and the relative fat of of economic progress since the crisis of 2008, um, what we've seen is that organizations have have indeed encrusted themselves in all kinds of rules that probably turn out to be rather trivial or unnecessary or just liability managing rather than creating uh, safety competence or resilience on the front line you see that some of this now goes out the window because we have an emergency right there is a crisis there's stuff to do and so we take final year med students out of out of college and Put them to work, right? We call um, uh, pensioners in and say, "Here, you go do this. You have some experience as a nurse. Boom, we need you, right?" And, and in fact, I just got an email from the aviation regulator in um, in, in, in 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 Aussie, uh, where I currently am, and it basically says, "Hey, look, if your medical expires, don't worry about it. You're good for the next six months. <laughs> in other words, right, you can just fly without a current medical." And so all of a sudden, we are. We are removing some of these encrustations that turn out not to be critical at all. We were running around going, oh, my God, we've got all these critical risks, right? Oh, imagine somebody flying without a current medical. They'll die. No, they don't. Um, And it's under the pressure of this sort of uh, crisis that allows us to, uh, to get rid of that. Now, I think if we do that well, we will be able to accelerate out of this crisis quicker because we will be more nimble. All right. We are we've shed some of the loads that we have accrued over the past 12, 13 years um, without really much return on that investment because we were so concerned about managing the critical risks.
0: I think you're absolutely right. In fact, it's so interesting to watch them throw rules aside in the time of crisis. I mean, rules clearly get in the way of actually doing the work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting that if if Times are not crisis. We're able to hide that because rules always get in the way of doing that work. Oh, but you know, we're able to hide it. We're able to work around it. We're able to sort of fudge it or massage it or not talk about it or yeah, oh, it's not really an injury. Let's not report it. You know, was it reportable? No, we didn't report it, so it wasn't. You know, it's so um, and all of that gaming becomes trivial and irrelevant in the current situation. And so, in in a sense, perhaps Todd, perhaps we're just becoming more. Honest. Perhaps we're forced to be more honest with each other in these times. But uh, um, strike so, is a really
0: good way to look at that. I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting and very positive way to look at that.
1: I, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And and there's there's other ways in which um, I think a crisis like this tells us something about humanity and, and the indelible spirit of humanity that I think is, is hugely instructive and I find it inspiring and encouraging. Right. If you um, if you look at. Some of the um, the hoarding and you know people pushing each other aside in the supermarket to get to the toilet paper. Um, you go, wow, crisis is doing bad things to humanity, right? We and it's sort of this Hobbesian, uh, right? Thomas Hobbes' interpretation of, right. of of humanity, where if you strip away civilization, all that's left um, is uh, is a brute human being, barely better than the next animal, right? And um, but research actually returns a very different picture. And this, this came out initially uh, during the allied bombings of German cities and during the World War, uh, World War II. And what it showed was was instead um, a crisis like this one, and of course carpet bombing a city, uh, quite literally, is, is, a, is, a, is a fundamental leveling device. Um, and I mean in, in bombing multiple ways, but even the coronavirus is a fundamental leveling device because immunity doesn't exist. And you know what? It cannot be purchased because it isn't there. And so the virus is utterly agnostic about who you are, where you come from, how much cash you have, right? It doesn't care. And so um, it is in that sense to speak with Kierkegaard existentially indifferent, it doesn't give a damn. And so that fundamental leveling does something to humanity because we're all in it together, right? And none of us is, us is literally is immune. And so what you see and what, what, what those studies in, uh, in in Germany showed was um, you get an immense generosity. You get people helping each other, throwing their skills uh, out for others to use, their gifts, their talents, um, their time, their, their possessions, their assets. Uh, Everybody helps each other. And that generosity and literal selflessness is something that comes out during times of crisis like this one. And we're seeing it all across your country and, in fact, the world as we speak, which I think is immensely inspiring and encouraging. And what it tells me about all the work that we've done in safety over the past two decades shows that this consistent doubting and mistrusting uh, humanity and the intentions of our fellow human beings in which we've always felt that we need to put more rules and fences and and, and limitations around our fellow human beings lest they do the wrong thing is misguided, is misguided. We can actually trust our fellow human beings to do the right thing.
0: I can't imagine a better way to end a podcast than saying we can actually trust our fellow human beings to do the right thing. Ah, maybe that's what I needed today was a little boost of positive energy in the way I'm thinking about the world and the way the world's presenting itself to me. I really enjoyed chatting with Sid about this topic. I I didn't, I didn't think I wouldn't enjoy it. I mean, had I thought I would have been terrible, I probably wouldn't have done it. I mean, I'll just be really honest with you, but I didn't realize it would have this much value. And I would think about this problem so much differently than I thought about it before we had this conversation, which is why I'm so glad to share this with you. That's pretty much the podcast. I mean, think about it, send this to your boss, see if you can get them to listen. Hopefully you can. That's good. All of you guys that listen, thank you. Take care of yourself, please. Um, give me comments or feedback. Uh, do what you can. Get somebody else to listen. You know the drill. Until then, though, learn something new every single day. I bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. And for goodness sakes, you guys, be safe.